Here we are in uh, our study in Philippians once again. And as you see, we've, we've moved into the second chapter. And I want to remind you that our theme is the fellowship of the gospel. So that's our, our big theme that we are working from, the fellowship of the gospel. And the Greek word for fellowship, some of you know this, but the Greek word is koinonia. And it's translated in a number of different ways. It's translated uh, communion. It's translated partnership. Uh, it's translated uh, to share uh, community even. Uh, it's translated that way. But the idea is that of a shared interest. So the fellowship of the gospel, we have a shared interest in the gospel. Paul and the Philippians have a shared interest in seeing the gospel glorified and advanced in Philippi and beyond. Yet apparently, from the text that we just read, there are attitudes and behaviors among some in the church that are looking more like self-interest and personal ambition than like a shared interest in Christ and the gospel. So here Paul appeals to the Philippians to think and act like Christ, who although equal with God, did not leverage his divinity to his own advantage, but humbled himself by becoming a servant to all. So I want to read once again, verses five through eight, but I'm gonna read from the NIV. Uh, John read from the uh, NKJV this morning. I want to read it from the NIV because I think this is really the best translation of this portion of Scripture. So here's what Paul said. Yet uh, uh, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so that's the, the NIV translation. And I love the way they translated it here, you know, uh, the NKJV says, who being in uh, the form of God, which is a statement declaring the deity of Christ, but I think the NIV just makes it crystal clear that uh, who being in very nature God. And then, as it goes on in the, in the NKJV, who did not uh, consider a robbery to be equal with God, Again, I think the uh, NIV did a, a better job in clarifying what's being talked about here. Did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. And so that's what we're, we're going to talk about today because the, um, the antidote, if you will, or the solution to self-centeredness and selfish ambition and conceit and all of those things, the the antidote to that is the mind of Christ. And, and Paul's point, in a sense, is to say, um, okay, let's, let's think about who Jesus is, and then let's talk about what Jesus did. 
And if this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus did, then we need to have the same mindset. And when you think about who Jesus is and what he did, it's hard then to even begin to remotely justify any self-interest on our part. Now, William Barclay said this regarding this passage. I want to read this to you. He said, in many ways, this is the greatest and most moving passage Paul ever wrote about Jesus. It states a favorite thought of his. The essence of it is, in the simple statement Paul made to the Corinthians, that although Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Here that simple idea is stated with a fullness which is without parallel. And this is, this is one of the great texts in all of scripture. And it, if, we, if we understand what it's really saying, we see that uh, it's certainly a great text that um, makes clear who Jesus is. And so that's the first point that we want to just touch on. So who is Jesus according to the text? Well, Paul says here in no uncertain terms, that Jesus is none other than God. Now, we know this. The Bible teaches this, but amazingly, some people still don't get it, and not just people outside of the church who you would understand if they didn't get it, but sometimes people in the church don't get it. Sometimes people in the church are in denial of the who the, the very nature of Christ. Now, when I say in the church, I'm talking about the broader umbrella of uh, what is known as, as Christianity. That would include uh, the liberal segment, the progressive segment. But um, amongst those people who are claiming to be Jesus followers, they would deny that Christ is by very nature God. But yet the scripture says it so plainly. And as I said here, Paul, uh, he, he minces no words. Uh, he makes it clear that Jesus is the one true and only God. He is the one who made all things by the word of his power, the one who always has been and always will be, the eternal one who, was, uh, who has life and being in himself. And so Paul states, who being in the form of God or who being by very nature God. So that's where he starts. But remember, and we're going to come back to this at the end, but remember he's saying, now let this mindset be in you that was in Christ. Who is Christ? Well, okay, to start, he's God. He's the only God. He's the true God. He's the living God. He's the maker of all things. And so then he goes on to talk about um, well, first of all, he talks about what he did not do. Now, the idea in the minds of people in the ancient world, and even in the minds of people today as well, would be that if there's a God, then that God is going to, just by very uh, definition, going to be one who uh, has dominion and authority over people. And obviously, that is partially true. But there's the, the true God, there's a, there's a whole nother aspect to the true God that nobody would ever guess. 
And it's this aspect that he did not use his divinity to his own advantage. And so let's look secondly at what Jesus didn't do. And it says here that he did not use his divinity to his own advantage. But what does that look like? Well, think about this. He did not use his power to satisfy or to sustain himself. Remember in the, um, the wilderness where Jesus is tempted, Matthew chapter 4, uh, Luke chapter 4, we have the, the account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and remember, he's fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. And, and, and then it says, and the devil came to him and said, well, if you're the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. And this is where we see that Jesus did not use his divinity to his own advantage. He did not do what the devil suggested that he do. He did not use his power to satisfy or to sustain himself. In that same temptation moment that was transpiring there, maybe you remember that there was a point where it says, and, and the devil took him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, cast yourself down because it's written that he will give his angels charge over you and they will catch you. They'll save you. They'll sweep you up and, and bear you to safety lest you dash your foot against a stone. But what do we see with Jesus? We see that he did not use his power to prove or to exalt himself. But see, these were moments where you would have thought that he would have. And, and you would have expected, and I would imagine if the, uh, if the disciples or any of us were privy to all of this that was going on, if we were sitting there, we would probably say, Jesus, Jesus, do it, do it. Turn those stones into bread. Show them, Jesus. Jesus, do it. Jump down and let them see who you are. Jesus did not do that. He did not use his divinity to his own advantage. Think about this. He did not force anyone to follow him. Now, who being in the form of God, who being by very nature God, if anyone could come and just say, follow me, period. No questions asked. He could have done it, but he didn't do it. He never forced anyone to follow him. And here's an amazing one. He did not use his power to resist or subdue his enemies. And this is what you would think that he would do. But he didn't. That's the point. He didn't do that. As Paul said, he did not use his position to his own advantage. He actually used his position to the advantage of others. That's the amazing thing. And so as we go on, what did he do? Well, he tells us here what he did. He tells us that he made himself of no reputation. So God, who comes into the world as a human being, he made himself nothing. 
this passage is known among people who kind of talk in theological language uh, as the kenosis passage. And it's taken from this word that's translated made right here. And the idea is, behind this word is that he emptied himself. So what did he do? Well, he emptied himself. And the best way to explain that, I guess, would be that he, all of these privileges, all of these prerogatives, these things that, that belong to him because of who he is, he just, um, he, he did not use those things. So he, he emptied himself. He made himself empty. That's the idea. But it's important that we understand this, that he did not become any less who he already was. So Jesus, the God-man, there never was a point where it wasn't like he set aside his divinity. Like, I'm going to leave my divinity behind and now I'm going to become a human being. No, this thing called the hypostatic union is that you have God and man becoming one. And that's what is taking place here. And so in, in doing this, he did not cease to be what he was before, but he became what he was not before. He became a man, but he was still who he had always been. And so he made himself nothing. And then he took on the form of a servant. He took on the form of a servant. No, you know, if you think of this, I mean, this is really, it, it really is mind boggling. Now we've all seen movies or maybe we've read books or we've heard stories, you know, a great story that's been told in so many different ways over and over again it is the story of the, you know, the great ruler, the king, or, you know, whatever the position might be, how they disguise themselves as one of the common people. And they go out and they live uh, among their subjects. And they, you know, they experience life as they did, and they see the injustices that are being done and so forth. And then at a certain point, you know, they rip open their shirt and you know, oh, it's the king. And, and everybody's amazed and surprised. And, you know, our beloved leader. And, you know, he, he identified with us. You know, those stories have been told over and over and over again. But they're all really a, a glimpse of this story, which is the greater of all of these stories. Because he took the form of a servant and boy, when you think about that, he took the form of a servant. You, you, again, you think of all the ways that God could have sent his son into the world. But yet he came. And we know the, the story of his humble uh, birth in relative obscurity in the city of Bethlehem and in that manger and, you know, all, that whole story. I mean, this is, this is not a story that somebody made up. This is the real thing that all the other stories are derived from. But he took upon himself a form, the form of a servant, the form of a bond slave, 
Now, in the Roman world, of course, there was uh, the majority of the population in the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. And so, really, Jesus becomes just one of the people. He becomes a servant. And then it even goes further. He became obedient to death. He became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And this is the, this is the, the point of the, the, where he condescends to the lowest imaginable point. Now we have, because of 2,000 years of church history and because of knowing the, the glory and the power of the cross and all of that, you know, we've, and rightfully so, we've glorified the cross. And we've made the cross, in a sense, an honorable symbol. But it was not so at the time, and it was not so even for many centuries afterward. The, the thought of somebody dying on a cross, the cross was reserved for criminals. The cross was reserved for the dregs of society. And so the idea that, the, that God who becomes a man not only is obedient to the point of death, but even, Paul says, the death of the cross, this is unthinkable. Unthinkable. We were in Israel last year and we were, uh, you know, in part of our tour, we go to the place where um, Jesus was tried. And we go into a, a room there that might very well be the, the very room that Jesus was taken into, uh, where the soldiers mocked him and you know, all of those things went on. And, and our tour guide at the time was talking to us about um, just the whole idea of crucifixion and Jesus being crucified as, as you know, um, the Savior. And, and he was trying to emphasize how antithetical this was to the Jewish mind at the time. Because the Messiah, in the mind of the Jew, was like, the best uh, way you could think of the Messiah would be to think of like David in, in the height of his glory. You know, David, the greatest king of Israel, the, the one who brought victory. And of course, it was promised that the Messiah would be the son of David. So um, in the Jewish mind, that's what they're thinking. The Messiah is a king. The Messiah is a conqueror. The Messiah is somebody who comes and defeats the foes. But the message is that the Messiah was crucified by the Romans. This is, is far from the, the idea in the mind of the Jew that you could possibly get. But not only was it that to the Jew, it was that to the rest of the world as well. And, and as Paul says, that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. You mean to tell me, now remember the Greeks were the thinkers, they were the philosophers, they were the people who were gonna figure it all out. They were really the first humanist in a sense. And so for them, you know, salvation or attaining to glory, all that is, is, is gonna be through the intellect. It's gonna be through uh, you know, figuring out the, the system like Plato attempted to or Aristotle or whoever else. And, 
But then the message comes to these Greek cities like Corinth, for example, or like Philippi, where they are, that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, died on a cross. Oh my goodness, what? That, that just makes zero sense. But that's what Jesus did. He became of no reputation. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want to I read you a quote from uh, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. He, he said this. He said, as we look at Jesus Christ, we cannot avoid the astounding conclusion of divine obedience. Notice, he became obedient to death. Uh, the astounding conclusion of divine obedience. Therefore, we have to draw the no less astounding deduction that in equal divinity between the Father and the Son, there is also a first and a second. One who rules and commands in majesty and one who obeys in humility. The one God is both the one and the other. And why this statement is so profound because, is because what he's saying is that God himself became obedient to the point of death. See, we can never lose sight of Jesus says, he's God. And so as he says, and I think, it, I think it's so profound, one who rules and commands in majesty, and we even saw Jesus demonstrate that in his public ministry. He commanded the wind and the waves to be still, and he cast out the demons, and when they came into the garden to arrest him, he spoke a word and they all fell backward. He's the one who commands in majesty, but he's the one who obeys in humility. And that's what we see. That's what Paul is saying here. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is what God did. This is what God did. And so God in the person of Jesus lived entirely for others. He lived for the will of the Father and for the salvation of mankind. Now, because of all these things, Paul goes on to tell us what God did and will do for Jesus. And so it says here in verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is what God has done. And now, when we think about God doing this for Jesus, the reason why Paul says, as he does in verse nine, therefore God has also highly exalted him. It's really, it's not, the therefore God has highly exalted him is not directly tied to because this is what he did, but it's really tied to because this is who he is. 
You see, even before he did what he did, he was highly exalted. And so because of who he is, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name and so that every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the key word here, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is called the Christ or the Messiah, that he is Kurios, and Kurios is the name for God. Now, in, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, this word was used for life. It was used for the emperor. The emperor was called Kurios, the Lord. And it was, the idea was that he was the, uh, you know, the supreme one. But when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, uh, the scholars took the name of God, Yahweh, and they translated it into the Greek, kurios. And so what Paul is saying here is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Yahweh that he is the one and only true and living God, God the Son, to the glory of God the Father. Now, all of this is the foundation for why we should behave in a certain way and not in another way. That's, that's the whole point that Paul is making here. Remember how... The chapter begins, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And then he says what we are not to do. We are not to do anything through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, but it wasn't that long ago in December. Remember, we were doing a series leading up to Christmas and we were taking different texts that spoke about the incarnation. And maybe you remember Pastor Jordan was teaching on this passage. And um, to date, that is the best message I've ever heard on this text. So if you wanna get an even more detailed uh, and specific exposition of this passage. Pick up the message that Jordan gave back in December. But one of the things that Jordan said, um, and I want to I want to take off on this. Uh, he said this: selfishness combats the Christian life. This is the point that Paul's making. Selfishness combats the Christian life. Remember, the fellowship of the gospel. We have a shared interest in what in Jesus, the gospel, the kingdom. But if I am really more preoccupied with self-interest, then I'm actually working against the gospel. I'm combating it. 
You see, the gospel will have no effect in or through our lives if we are steeped in or motivated by selfish ambition and conceit. We are living in the time, truly. You know, there's passages that tell us about the condition of the world in the last days. And the last days is a, is a reference to the period of time between the ascension of Jesus back into heaven and the return of Jesus in the, in the future. So it's a long period of time, but obviously the last days get more the last days the closer you get to the return of the Lord. But one of the things that the, the scripture says about the last days, one of the marks of the last days is men and women, human beings will be lovers of themselves. And, and we're told that there will be a heightened attitude of self-interest, selfish ambition, conceit. And boy, we are living in those times, at least in our cultural context, we are in those times. I mean, the mantra of today is basically just love yourself. You are the most important and you just need to dive down into who you are and you need to express that and doesn't matter what anybody thinks, it, it's just, it's all about you. That's the world we live in. And this mentality is not just out in Hollywood. <laughs> it's not just on the streets of New York City. Uh, it, you know, it, it's everywhere. And it's in the church. It was in the church then, and it's in the church now. So, again, let me quote from Jordan, from his message. He said, we are all selfish at some point. We all want our way at our time for our benefit at some point. But that isn't the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus is a message of a person who received all glory from God by laying down all glory due to him. Humanity was made for glory, but sin short-circuited that destiny. We can again move into glory, but now we participate in the glory given first to another who shares it with us, our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, we participate in his inglorious death, whereby he dealt with sins and glorious destiny. And by faith, we are resurrected just as he was in glory. Jesus neither accomplished his glory through selfishness nor our glory through selfishness, and neither do we accomplish any glory through selfishness. Selfishness combats the Christian life. Remember that. And I titled the message today, Thinking and Living Christian. The definition of Christian is Christ-like. Thinking and living Christ-like. You see, to live like Jesus, we have to think like Jesus. And if we really do think like Jesus, we will then live like Jesus. And so... That brings us to what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, Paul tells us right here, in lowliness, esteem others better than ourselves. Wow. 
and lowliness esteem others better than ourselves. How in the world do you do that? Well, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. Jesus did it. And he set an example for us, but here's what's even more important. And, and here's the great news. Christ lives in you. See, if it was simply like Jesus set this example and now you go try your best to do this, we would, it would be hard to say the least. It would be impossible. But it's possible because not only did Christ show us by what he did, but he indwells us to empower us to do it. So in lowliness, esteem others better than ourselves. In lowliness, we have a real perspective on, on who we are. You know, we're just lowly creatures. And if we who are just made of dust, if, if you know, if, if Christ, God in the flesh, if he did this, then who are we to think that we should be any different? So in lowliness, esteem others better than ourselves, Look out, not only for our own interests, but the interest of others. Look out for the interest of others. Now, listen, we all know this. This goes so against the grain of human nature. You know, I, I want to look out for my own interest. And what do you mean esteem others better than myself? I mean, I'm the best. I want to be the best. But, you know, this, this whole thing of selfish ambition, conceit, all of this kind of stuff, you know, this is stuff that's in the heart, but it, but it works itself out in attitudes and in behaviors. And it's the very thing that has to be dealt with if we're going to really experience the fellowship of the gospel. Because if it's not dealt with, we're combating the Christian life. We're fighting against it. And that will manifest itself across the board in every facet of your life. It'll manifest it in your home with your family. It'll manifest it on your job with your colleagues. It will show itself in your church, in the fellowship. And we must let this mind be in us that was also in Christ Jesus looking out for the interest of others. Because in the body of Christ, as we're looking out for the interest of others, you know what we're really looking out for? We're looking out for the interest of the gospel. Because this is how the gospel advances. This is how the gospel is glorified. The gospel is glorified when people see other people, wow, they're serving each other. They're loving each other. They're supporting each other. They're promoting each other. They're not fighting and uh, trying to climb the ladder of success. Sadly, this happens so often in churches, but it should not. And God help us to not have that mentality among us. But because we're sinners, because this is the stuff that's in our nature, we have to resist it when it surfaces. You know, there are times when I will just suddenly have this surge of selfish ambition. 
And the Lord's like, here, let's squash that right now. And, that, and that's what we have to do. We have to let the Lord do that. Because this is, this is just our condition. But because of the example of Jesus, but more importantly, because of the indwelling spirit of Christ, we can have the victory over this. So, as again, going back to what Paul said, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the spirit, any affection and mercy, is there any of that stuff? Well, the point is, of course there is. That's what he's saying. And since that is the truth, then let's adopt that same mind as Christ. And listen, if you adopt this mind, it'll save your marriage. It'll bless your family. It'll cause you to be an effective witness at work. If you adopt this mind, you will become a blessing to the body of Christ. And you will be part of those things that work together to see the kingdom of God advanced. Now, remember one, one last thing here. Paul, these are his friends. Remember, we've been talking about that in Philippi. That This church, these are his friends. And Paul is, you know that this is so painful for he, him to even have to say this because it's like, come on, guys. And you know, sometimes this, and I can identify with Paul in this, and anybody who's, you know, in a position like I am, you can, you can relate because you know, sometimes it just seems like, okay, we're moving forward and we're all doing so great and we're advancing and we got our eye on the prize, Jesus. And then there's like somebody over there blowing their own trumpet. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, wait, what, what are you doing? No, get back in here. You're not supposed to be doing that. But selfish ambition, conceit, something like that leads them astray. And God help us. It's in all of us. It's in me. It's in you. But let this mind be in you that was in Christ. That is the word. Thinking and living Christian. If you think like Christ, you will live like Christ. That's what Paul is telling us here.